Hello, and welcome to the Lawfare Podcast. I'm Rafaela Wakeman. A few weeks ago, I sat down with Mark Plotkin, a partner in Covington and Burling's Washington, D.C. office. We talked about his practice as a national security lawyer working in the private sector. Among other matters, he represents clients before the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. We also spoke about issues currently in the news that highlight the intersection of private industry with national security matters. I'm sure that many of our listeners are aware that national security law isn't just practiced by government attorneys, but many people think of it just as criminal defense work. Uh, what does it mean in your case? You know, you have a very unique practice. Uh, what does it mean to practice national security law in the private sector? Uh, well, thanks. Thanks for uh, coming to my office to talk about this today. Um, uh, it's you, you, you call it a unique practice. Um, I'd say, I, I, I guess I would call it an unusual practice uh, that is shared by you know, a, a small but significant bar here in, in Washington, a uh, number of very good firms and very good lawyers who do this kind of work, uh, some of whom have uh, prior government experience and others who don't. Uh, but in, in every case, uh, a, a national security practice in the private sector involves uh, uh, working with private sector clients who uh, end up having to interface with the federal government in one way or another uh, with respect to uh, uh, the application of national security laws. And it comes up in many different contexts. The one, the one that uh, uh, I tend to focus on here myself uh, has to do with uh, cross-border transactions, uh, foreign investments into the United States that are reviewed by uh, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. or CFIUS, uh, and uh, that gets a lot of that, that, those tend to get sort of the most press play because they tend to often be large transactions, but not always. Uh, that end up on you know the front pages of the papers, and uh, there's usually a lot of chest beating by uh, uh, pundits and others uh, about the fact that. You know, this particular foreign acquisition or that particular foreign investment in the United States is going to trigger national security concerns and the like. But it also comes up in many other contexts, uh, you know, under the uh, Patriot Act, for example, uh, private sector institutions get served with national security letters uh, that require them to, uh, you know, provide certain kinds of information uh, uh, for purposes of uh, trying to, uh, uh, you know, stop terrorist activities or the like. Uh, it comes up in the uh, money laundering and uh, or the anti-money laundering and terrorist financing context with financial institutions, which have a very broad definition under the Patriot Act and can include casinos, jewelry stores, uh, used car uh, uh, dealerships, uh, and the like. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of uh, private sector institutions that come into contact with the national security apparatus. Uh, and that's what uh, lawyers like myself uh, are involved in handling. Well, thanks for that great summary. Um, let's go back to CFIUS, um, or the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. Mm -hmm. What exactly is it, and what does it do, and, and why? So uh, CFIUS, uh, it, it's got a great name because it does, <laughs> cause it does sound like syphilis or some other kind of disease. <laughs> and. Uh, 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 and I'd say that it, it, it truly does strike fear into the hearts of foreign clients uh, for the most part. I mean, it really is viewed with great trepidation. Uh, 
and in some instances for good reason. Um, so CFIUS is a is an, a federal interagency committee. Uh, it, it, it is unique, um, and not that it's a federal interagency committee makes it unique, but the fact that it is one that operates entirely by consensus. Uh, it operates in largely in secret. Uh, its uh, activities, uh, for the most part, are secret or classified. Um, and what it is charged with doing is uh, undertaking reviews of foreign investments in the United States uh, where those investments are going to result in the control uh, in one manner or another of a U.S. business by a foreign investor. Uh, and uh, oddly, uh, in our system, the, uh, the, the reviews that are conducted by CFIUS are conducted on a voluntary basis. I mean, the parties submit, uh, say, a foreign investor or a foreign acquirer in a U.S. party, uh, voluntarily submit their transaction to CFIUS uh, for a review. And one would wonder, you know, why would you ever submit a transaction on a voluntary basis to a, a, a federal interagency committee? Uh, and, the, and the short answer is, is that the committee, which acts at the, uh, as a delegate of the President of the United States, has really awesome powers, uh, very broad powers. Those powers include the ability to block a foreign investment, and if the investment has already occurred, to completely unwind the investment uh, after the fact and put the parties back in their original positions, uh, make them return their money or their property or whatever. And there is no, there's no statute of limitations on the committee's ability to do that. It can do it 20 years after a deal is closed. Um, uh, and there is no judicial review of the committee's actions. So you might disagree, but you really have no place to go. Uh, in light of that, uh, there is a strong incentive to file with the committee because you do buy yourself something when you file. When you file and the committee reviews your transaction and decides not to disapprove it, then you get the benefit of a safe harbor. Uh, once the committee has reviewed it and you go ahead and consummate your transaction, uh, CFIUS is stopped from coming back after the fact and trying to unwind your deal unless you, you know, misrepresented something to CFIUS during the process or you violate whatever agreement you might have entered into. Uh, all the major uh, cabinet departments are players in CFIUS, um, and uh, uh, it, uh, uh, it tries to act you know, relatively promptly. Uh, it has a, sort of a basic 30-day review process. Uh, these days, about 40% of transactions go on to be uh, reviewed in a longer second stage, additional 45-day review period. So you know, your transaction can take 30 days to be reviewed or up to 75 days to be reviewed. Uh, and roughly, more or less, roughly 10% of all foreign you know, investments in the U.S. go through the CFIUS review process. Okay. Um you know, one uh, you know one question that hearing the the, the CFIUS process brings to mind is how did 9/11 affect the CFIUS process? Did foreign investment completely drop after 9/11? Um, were were foreign investors very nervous about it? What you know did Congress respond and and change the way CFIUS works? What you know what sort of happened after 9/11? I'm shocked that you're answer, asking me this question. No, I, I'm not. Um, uh, I'm sorry. I just thought I'd mix it up there a little bit because uh, this can I can I can often end up speaking in a monotone. So I figured I'd come up with that. Um, 
it's interesting. People who've been around for years in Washington and have seen the CFIUS process evolve over time, uh, many of them, uh, particularly if they're not actively doing CFIUS cases now, have a view of CFIUS that is really frozen in time and is pre-9-11. When I run into people who are, you know, say, relatively senior, which is code for old or older, um, and they haven't interacted with CFIUS for many years, uh, they will describe CFIUS as a uh, defense-focused sort of check-the-box process. If it's a defense-related transaction, you know, one submitted something to CFIUS to essentially get a rubber stamp uh, that everything was okay with your transaction. Uh, After 9-11, there was a a lot of soul-searching within the federal government about what kinds of things we were doing at home that might make the United States more vulnerable in Mm -hmm. the future. Uh, One thing we saw from 9-11 was that uh, our our air traffic could be vulnerable. Uh, And while CFIUS doesn't have anything to do with the air traffic, specifically, obviously, we put into place the, the TSA and Homeland Security and the like. Uh, that's just one manifestation of how the country was trying to, you know, reevaluate its homeland security as a general matter. Uh, but another thing that uh, 9-11 did was breathe new life into CFIUS. And as a policy matter, uh, the various agencies that are involved in CFIUS uh, took a look at uh, what it is around the United States that might make the U.S. vulnerable uh, in the event of conflict or to terrorism or the like. Uh, uh, through foreign ownership. And while that wasn't a new concept for CFIUS, applying it largely outside the defense context was a new, was a new step. Uh, and it, it's been an incremental process as CFIUS has had to review transactions. Um, it has kind of explored things sector by sector. Uh, and it's been, an, to some extent, an ad hoc process for CFIUS. Uh, one of the very first uh, industries that CFIUS t- took a fresh look at was the telecommunications sector mm-hmm. after 9-11. I, I think you'll remember the global crossing transaction back in 2002-2003, which was uh, really the first post-9-11 CFIUS uh, uh, review of a foreign investment in telecommunications infrastructure. And in that case, uh, you had a bankrupt uh, telecom company that had a you know, bunch of backbone fiber in the U.S. proposed to be acquired by a, uh, a Hong Kong-based company and a Singaporean-based company. Uh, initially, uh, uh, CFIUS was uh, reticent to have either of them acquire Global Crossing. Uh, and it, even when the Hong Kong-based company dropped out, there were uh, folks within the administration uh, who were opposed to the idea of any foreign control of uh, backbone infrastructure and telecom. Uh, it ultimately took the president to disagree with CFIUS, uh, President Bush personally, uh, and Condoleezza Rice, when she was the national security advisor, to approve that transaction so that Singapore Technologies Telemedia might acquire Global Crossing. So that that resolved, you know, a one specific policy issue, you know, whether there could ever be foreign ownership of, you know, telecommunications infrastructure in the United States. But one of the great interesting things about this practice is resolving these policy issues um, on on a sort of case by case ad hoc basis over time. Uh, it's a constantly renewing practice. You know, you never know whether you're going to be resolving, you know, something new in the telecom sector or you know, oil and gas or, you know, food safety or any, any one of those kinds of things. Uh, that, that's a constantly evolving process since 9-11.
So you just, uh, you mentioned food safety. Um, recently there was um, news that an American uh, pork product manufacturer um, may be uh, acquired by a Chinese company. Could you, could you talk a little bit about the Smithfield Farms um, transaction? Uh, sure. I, you, know, you said you want me to talk. I feel badly hogging all of the, uh, <laughs> the, the time here. Uh, Was the word hogging chose intentionally? Intentionally, <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. I know. It's pretty, uh, hopefully my daughters won't listen to this, so I'll be accused of being lame as usual. Um, so on the Smithfield transaction, it's interesting. That, that, that is a transaction that uh, I think has, you know, causes a visceral reaction among many people uh, to think you know, who might not have thought that that would raise a national security issue at one point in the past, but who today, uh, having been sensitized to national security issues, and in particular, uh, you know, uh, people who are familiar with, uh, you know, some of the environmental and food chain uh, security uh, problems in China, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, visions of, you know, rotting pigs in, you yeah, know, the, the in the river and things <laughs> like that. Uh, you know, people have, have, I think, understandably, you know, flipped to think about this transaction and say, well, you know, why, why wouldn't, you know, uh, one of America's largest, you know, most important food suppliers uh, be treated as a national security concern? Uh, and and as, you, as you know, that transaction, the parties announced, when they announced the transaction, they announced that they were filing with CFIUS right. uh, for national security review. Um, my own view, uh, and I'm not involved in that transaction, but my own view is that the reason that the parties are filing with CFIUS is not because they necessarily expect that CFIUS is going to have any national security concerns with the transaction. I think that what they are doing is something that we often see parties doing, and that is cloaking themselves, uh, wrapping themselves in the CFIUS flag uh, in response to what they expect will be a, uh, a more of a public policy or political and media debate about the proprietary about the about the propriety of a Chinese company owning Smithfield uh, Foods, uh, uh, because I do think that, and you see this periodically, uh, that transactions come under a tremendous amount of pressure in the Congress and in the media, uh, on the ground that they somehow raise a national security concern, even though CFIUS itself, looking at technical national security issues, tends to not think that there's a, a, a national security uh, concern there. Uh, but, but people use the you know kind of the hammer of Cepheus publicly and toss it around as you know this this is a, this is a real problem. So in many instances, parties will say, well, let's just go ahead and file with Cepheus, and then we'll, when this thing comes up in public debate, we can say, look, this this transaction is getting a national security scrub, uh, and that's a, that's a fair thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why I personally think that this transaction, you know. Uh, with, with a couple of caveats, shouldn't have a problem on the merits with CFIUS, is that the food, this food chain, uh, the food supply chain in the United States is one of the most heavily regulated areas that there is. Uh, I mean, for the most part, we never worry about our food here uh, because of the system of USDA inspectors and USDA regulation and the like. I'm sure that USDA, the Department of Agriculture, will be impleted into the CFIUS review here, even though it's not a regular member of the CFIUS committee. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you find in CFIUS reviews is that even in relatively or potentially sensitive areas, if that area is already very heavily regulated, 
and there is a well-established, you know, kind of chain of, uh, you know, security protocols and the like. Think, you know, nuclear reactors, yeah. for example, and the electric grid and the like. You know, that they, they, those aren't areas that Civius doesn't care about, but the first thing they do is they look to see whether the area is already heavily protected. Mm -hmm. um, and in this case, it is. Uh, my guess is, is that what CFIUS will come back to is sort of more basic principles, and that is uh, when you look at Smithfield, the headquarters is uh, in Smithfield is in the general vicinity of Nor Norfolk and Hampton Roads, Virginia, mm -hmm. and there are, you know, anywhere from a half dozen to a dozen, you know, military installations nearby. It isn't particularly close to any of those, uh, but the company also owns 460 uh, hog farms around the country. And one natural question that Cepheus might ask is, are any of those hog farms close to, you know, a sensitive, uh, you know, facility of some kind, military facility or something else we might care about? And if, it's, if that's the case, uh, it actually wouldn't be all that hard to cleave off that farm or a couple of farms or divest those assets. Uh, you don't have to kill the whole transaction over it. And so I can imagine that, you know, I, mean, I guess one other area that could come up for consideration is if Smithfield itself directly provides, you know, meals to uh, the Defense Department, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is it providing packaged foods or like, and then you get into some interesting data issues, you know, does, does Smithfield, through its customer records, know how many meals are going to what bases, uh, and where are they going to, so you have some sense of what the troop strength is, it, you know, you know, for if we have a contingent out with the British on Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean, and meals are going out there. Yeah, that's a kind of warped way people think about this type of stuff, but those are the kinds of things you think about. So it sounds like even in what might be considered an unusual transaction that CFIUS would review, there actually are some regular features of it. Um, there's the announce, some, some parties announce that they're going to file, some might not necessarily do it. What other, um, what other sort of features in a CFIUS review are kind of normal? Are there particular mitigation agreements that usually come up? Um, you know, from, from your perspective, of course. Right. So I mean, I've, I've just touched on a major one, which is uh, the subject of geographic proximity. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the term that the government has for that is persistent co-location, uh, <laughs> and uh, meaning that you, uh, a foreign uh, investor, owns something that is close to something else that might be sensitive. Uh, we see that come up, you know, pretty regularly when there are investments in places that people wouldn't ordinarily think of as sensitive, like, for example, uh, acquisitions of gold mines in Nevada, uh, hmm. where uh, the uh, investors you know, traditionally have been Chinese companies are buying gold mines uh, that are located uh, within uh, uh, earshot of uh, naval air stations that are involved in testing and training uh, uh, using uh, advanced systems and technology. Uh, and those have been blocked by CFIUS or unwound by CFIUS after the fact. Uh, but in addition to proximity, um, uh, other issues in, you know, involve uh, you know, uh, access to the military and defense supply chain. Um, uh, access to select agents and toxins, uh, you know, things that we might not, you know, dangerous chemicals or poisons and the things that we wouldn't want to have in, in people's hands. Access to export controlled technologies, uh, technologies that aren't supposed to be exported to China, for example, or to Russia without a license. Mm -hmm. uh, access to data. Uh, uh, this is one people often tend to miss, but data that might be held uh, that uh, provides information about uh, the defense industrial base or 
uh, perhaps movements of the intelligence community or communications of the intelligence community, um, access to or uh, control over critical infrastructure. We mentioned, I mentioned telecom earlier. Uh, access to or interconnection with the electric grid uh, is another area of great sensitivity for CFIUS. We've seen CFIUS block transactions in that area recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, CFIUS's concern is a natural one. They don't want a, you know, a, a company uh, to be, you know, whether it's doing so knowingly or not, to be utilized by a foreign power or, you know, somebody working through a foreign power to, you know, pull pull the plug on, the, you know, all the lights in the northeast, you know, in the middle of a conflict or something like that. Right, yeah. But those are, you know, those are just some of the kind of many considerations that CFIUS will tick through in a review. Okay. Um, so shifting away from CFIUS a little bit, um, we talked about Smithfield. Mm-hmm. What, um, you know, what other current issues in the news are uh, examples of national security colliding with the private sector. Um, are there any particular ones that you're really interested in or um, would like to talk about a little bit more with me? Um, you know, a, a great example of an area where national security, uh, as you put it, collides with the private sector, uh, you know, made itself well known in the media just over the last several days. Uh, and that has to do with the, um, uh, the activities of the National Security Agency uh, and other elements of the U.S. government through uh, the, the secret program known as PRISM mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, access to uh, you know, individual records of you know, Internet communications and telephone communications and the like. Um, much as I would like to discuss that with mm-hmm. you, I can't okay. uh, because I have conflict, so mm-hmm. um, I can't. But that, but, but that is in itself a way to make your I, 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 probably the best illustration for your audience to mm-hmm. to see how exactly how um, you know any company that is uh, you know involved in any respect or touching a program like that is going to need legal representation to, you know, interface with the FBI or the NSA or the Justice Department or the intelligence community in general. Um, uh, other areas where we see this coming up, as, as you were actually coming into my office mm-hmm. and we were talking about this, I mentioned that I'm going out of town today uh, to go meet with a company that, um, this, this sounds kind of mundane, but uh, is involved in uh, the, uh, you know, the sale of used cars. And uh, there have been a spate of instances over the last several years where used car uh, uh, dealers have been indicted uh, for uh, uh, aiding and abetting uh, money laundering uh, and, in particular, terrorist financing by, uh, through, you know, by agents on behalf of Hezbollah. There's a whole, there's actually a very well-known system by which uh, money makes its way from uh, Hezbollah uh, and other Iranian affiliates into the United States to purchase used cars at auction. Uh, They're shipped back to Africa. Uh, In particular, they are sold in Africa for some, you know, multiple of what they were purchased for in the United States uh, because there is a demand and there's not a lot of supply. Uh, and what ha- what happens then is that the money that was dirty, often is drug money, comes into the United States, then it becomes profit uh, that is associated with the sale of a used car and is able to be put into a bank and you know put on the books of a legitimate company in Cameroon or something like that. Uh, that's that's a, and so uh, you know, it's illegal to money launder, and uh, uh, so companies come. You know, this is this is part of the, sort of the more the bread and butter of a non syphilis practice. Uh, is dealing with those kinds of uh, issues. We deal with that for 
uh, you know, uh, uh, people who were involved in the, uh, you know, precious gems world for, you know, financial institutions, of course, all the mm -hmm. time uh, and the like. Uh, another area, uh, uh, you know, that we see periodically come up uh, relates to uh, the service of national security letters um, on, on uh, Internet service providers and the like. Uh, and dealing with, uh, you know, questions about whether or not, uh, you know, in responding to a national security letter, uh, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the respondent is somehow, um, you know, uh, acting with it solely within the scope of what is permitted uh, or whether, you know, things you, you think about when you do this is if the national security letter asks for X and you provide X plus Y, thinking that it's called for by the letter, but it's really not, mm -hmm. you know, do you have the kind of protection from liability for, for Y that you turned over uh, if it wasn't specifically called for by the letter? Uh, part, of, part, of it, part of what drives this is the fact that you get certain protections from liability when you are acting in response to, you know, uh, national security requests from the federal government. But that protection from liability only extends to the request, you know, to the scope of the request and not anything you happen to throw in, you know, if like I happen to throw your passport information in there just for the, you know, just for, you know, the, the fun of it, right. that, that may not be protected. Oh, okay. Huh. Well, I won't be giving you my passport number anytime soon. Oh, I, I've, already, I've, already, <laughs> I've already submitted it, actually, so I'm sorry about that. Man, I thought I deleted that file yeah. on the web. Um, well, you know, we've only got a few minutes left. Um, from from your perch, your perspective, um, again, you said you have a very unusual practice um, and per, and perspective. What um, what do you see as the most significant challenges in national security law today? Um, uh, well, uh, and, and by the way, I, I know you. I know you're trying to keep to a schedule. Mm -hmm. I would say that. I mean, from my view, I'm billing this at full rates, so we have all the time <laughs> in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll give you a statement on the way out. But uh, uh, I mean, the principle, one of the principal issues that I think we have, does come up in the CFIUS area again and again, and that is this continuing debate about. Uh, the tension between wanting and needing foreign investment in the United States, uh, in particular right now, to help reinvigorate the U.S. economy. Uh, and, and you actually, you, you can't go a day without reading in the newspaper about a state uh, governor and delegation that has gone over to China or to, you know, another Russia or someplace else, uh, Israel, India. Uh, uh, you know, offering tax incentives and uh, all sorts of other things to try to attract foreign investment to, you know, Ohio or Illinois or, right, you know, yeah. California or whatever. Constantly doing that. Um, and, you know, many states have offices specifically set up to try to develop this. And, of course, you've got U.S. ambassadors and the Commerce Department and the State Department and others, you know, roaming the world, the U.S. Trade Representative, you know, touting the benefit of, inv of you know, investing in a stable political economy like the United States. Um, and then at the same time, uh, having companies from around the world, not just China. I mean, China, uh, unfortunately, uh, and partly because of the nature of the things that Chinese companies uh, would like to invest in, and partly because of the kind of the challenges of the bilateral relationship today between the U.S. and China, 
Chinese companies tend to have, to some extent, a harder time in CFIUS, although the vast majority of Chinese transactions are approved mm. by CFIUS. But you know, there are transactions from around the world that have been turned down, including from Belgium and from Israel and from you know, India and all sorts of other countries, uh, Switzerland. Uh, so, I mean, to some extent, CFIUS is an equal opportunity offender if you're a, a foreign, you know, foreign investor. Uh, what CFIUS is trying to guard, you know, against national security concerns, the the real problem is the fact that, uh, you know, a foreign investor doesn't necessarily know that the company that they're investing in may be located near something that is sensitive or may have something that is sensitive. Uh, uh, and they won't necessarily know before they go before CFIUS review that they're going to have a problem. Uh, uh, this I, this may sound selfish, but uh, and self-promoting. But the, the reality is, is that the best thing though those companies can do is they can engage you know a good counsel, mm -hmm. uh, qualified CFIUS counsel in advance. Because one of the things that CFIUS lawyers do uh, is they will go out and informally reach out to contacts in the intelligence community and to uh, in the defense community and the Justice Department and the like to explore the sensitivities around particular assets, around particular country, you know, countries and companies and the like, to see whether there is a path forward for a particular transaction. More often than not, though, what happens is is that you get a call from a client that a transaction has just been signed up, and they want you to get CFIUS approval yesterday. And at that point, you really don't have the latitude to try to you know lay the groundwork or maybe even restructure the transaction to get rid of assets that might present a problem, so that the rest of the transaction can be presented you know as a whole. Um, I think that the tension between communicating that we want foreign investment and at the same time we want to protect ourselves against foreign investment is one that requires uh, a lot of work and a lot more explanation, particularly when I travel abroad and I, I see other, other countries saying, we're not really sure the U.S. really wants our money given the way we see companies treated by CFIUS. I, I don't think that's a fair perception, but it is, it is a true problem and I think that uh, the government is well aware of that problem. listening to the Lawfare Podcast, produced in collaboration with the Brookings Institution. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan.